Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As Peter mentioned in the introduction, the, the advertised title for this talk is Does Nature Make Laws? Um, and then there was a subtitle, I think, um, something like An Introduction to the Natural Law Tradition. Um, as I wrote this, um, I, I thought that maybe it deserved a slightly different title. That, that's, it's still an accurate title, but um, a potentially alternative title is Providence, the Nature of Law, and the Thomistic Natural Law Tradition. This will be about 45 minutes. It's a prepared lecture, but I look forward to staying after and hearing question and answer. I assume we, ha we have time for that. Yeah. As I was preparing this lecture, I was surprised and encouraged by a coincidence of history. 30 years ago, exactly 30 years ago, on November 10th, 1993, Russell Kirk gave a lecture at the University of Notre Dame Law School entitled Natural Law and the Constitution of the United States. I had read the lecture before, but rereading it and then noticing the date felt like a wink. In God's providence, Kirk was doing me a favor. Kirk's lecture, which was published subsequently in the Notre Dame Law Review and is available online, very well addresses the question that I was asked to speak on tonight and does so better and more directly than I am capable. When I received an invitation to speak on the Thomistic natural law tradition, it came with further specification, a motivating context for reflection on natural law. This campus is admirably attuned to theological and political questions, including about the nation's founding and its relation to Christian ideas, Protestant and Catholic. The invitation Peter's invitation, specifically mentioned John Locke as informing the founding and asked me to address the question of whether or to what extent a Lockean conception of natural law is compatible or could be compatible with the Thomistic account. These are thoughtful and worthy questions. I am humbled by them and you will have to determine whether or to what extent I honor my agreement to address them. I did say I would. But fair warning, if you came here hoping to understand the relation of the founding of the American Constitutional Republic to natural law theory, you are likely to be disappointed. You should leave now and go read Russell Kirk's lecture. Kirk makes the case, also advanced by Russell Hittinger, that the Constitution presumes natural law as articulated in the Thomistic tradition, but that understood in this sense, natural law, far from giving judges license to ignore the written constitution, binds judges to follow it. Kirk argues that the United States Constitution is informed by the natural law tradition, communicated through various sources, especially William Blackstone, Richard Hooker, for whom Aquinas was a source, and Cicero, who was a source for Aquinas. Tellingly, Kirk's lecture does not mention Locke, except implicitly and obliquely by reference to the Enlightenment doctrine of natural rights. Kirk's treatment suggests that if Locke did inform the founding, 
he did so only in a way that was compatible with and did not undermine the more traditional influences of the English, Catholic, and Roman traditions. In what follows, I won't say much about Locke either. I will say only a little about, the American, con about American constitutional jurisprudence, and I won't really say anything about the American founding. There are scholars far more qualified to address such matters. I am familiar enough with established debates in American political theory to believe that a careful examination of Aquinas should both inform and challenge those debates. My contribution to questions about the relation of Locke and the founding to, and the, to the Thomistic natural law tradition will be primarily to help make sense of what Aquinas meant by natural law. This might lead to answers uh, this, this might lead us to answer questions about Locke, Christianity, and the American founding, if we have such questions. But fair warning, it might also not answer those questions. Instead, it might reveal misleading assumptions or imprecisions in those questions, and it might give us the ability to reformulate those questions, to ask different questions, or to conceive of the possibility of answers that we hadn't yet considered. This is, in general, one of the great benefits of reading and acquiring the intellectual habits of Aquinas. He just does not always answer the questions that we are asking. He often helps us to ask the questions that we should have been asking, but that hadn't yet occurred to us. In the case of natural law, Aquinas's account will not only make us attend to different conceptions of moral rules and the nature of law, but to different conceptions of nature, of God's relation to nature, and of the human being's participation in God's governance of nature, including in concrete human acts like the founding of a constitutional republic. So the first main section of this talk is called, What is Natural Law? One of the first preconceptions that I hope to dispel is the idea that Aquinas's understanding of natural law should be associated with a political agenda or ideological inclination. Another preconception that I want to dispel is that Aquinas's account is some kind of very specific and perhaps highly technical theory, as if it must necessarily be treated as one among many rival approaches to moral and political reasoning. Heinrich Rahman, surveying, surveying the history of the idea of natural law, described its eternal recurrence from the original German title of his book. We might even say that some idea of natural law is inescapable, and here John Locke is an obvious confirmation. However different his ideas are from Thomas Aquinas, and however innovative he tried to make his account of politics and morality, he could not separate himself from the idea of natural law. It is not only that people are all governed by the natural law, whether they know it or not, which is the case, but that at least on some level everybody does know that they are governed by the natural law. Aquinas says that some knowledge of natural law cannot be avoided. A proper introduction to the Thomistic idea of natural law should make clear how intuitive, commonsensical, and indeed unavoidable the Thomistic idea of natural law is. To the extent this gives us perspective on Locke and the American experiment in constitutional government, it suggests that Locke may not have an entirely different so much as an incomplete or slightly distorted conception of natural law, one with, partial or uh, one with a partial or inadequate conception of nature, including of human nature. But if there is something inescapable about Aquinas's idea of natural law, I will need to explain why, despite being inescapable, discussions of natural law, discussion of natural law is widely held to be contentious. 
why that is, it seems to be so difficult both to gain assent to the general idea that there is a natural law and to establish consensus about specific requirements of the natural law and why even someone who does acknowledge some version of the natural law, such as John Locke, can nonetheless fall short of the conception that Aquinas communicated. Let us start with the basic idea of law. In common experience, law, whether we mean formal legislation of an official government, or a family's house rules, or a university's code of conduct, or even the requirements outlined on a professor's syllabus, all such laws are some, have some kind of binding force, something that creates not only an expectation, but an obligation of behavior. As my examples suggest, we learn this idea from experience in which law is made by human beings. But as soon as we notice that man-made law can bind us, we seem also to be aware that we are bound by something even before man-made law. The law from the lawnmaker says you ought to do something. But, but why ought you to obey the law? Why ought you to do what the lawmaker says? The professor has rules in the syllabus, but you also form a judgment about whether those rules are, re are reasonable and fair. How do you form that judgment? Especially if your professor changes the rules halfway through the semester. That's never happened, right? You will evaluate almost automatically whether the changes accord with some standard of justice that was not laid out but presumed by the syllabus. Let's take some weightier examples. Perhaps you are a black civil rights leader in the 1960s, and in order to protest segregation laws in Alabama, you are even willing to go to jail for breaking them, precisely to point out that there is a higher law to which those human laws do not conform. Or let's see, say you are a grieving woman in ancient Thebes whose brother recently died in a civil war. Burying him is contrary to the law laid down by the king of Thebes, but you sense the injustice of the law and don't feel obligated to obey it. Indeed, you feel obligated by something prior to and higher than the man-made law to disobey the man-made law and honor your brother with a proper burial. Martin Luther King Jr. did in fact explain in his letter from a Birmingham jail that his civil disobedience was motivated by a sense of a higher law, a moral law prior to man-made law and to which man-made law must conform. And he did so with reference to Aquinas, not to John Locke. And Sophocles' Antigone is often taken to give early voice to the idea of a natural law. It's cited by Aristotle and many thinkers since as a law according to nature. Once we see examples like that, it is hard not to realize that if we ever want to condemn, resist, or reform unjust human laws, or if we even want to evaluate whether laws should be condemned, resisted, or reformed, we must have reference to some standard of justice that is prior to the man-made law. In its most general form, the idea of natural law is just this, that there is something that binds or obliges us before and independent of man-made laws. If it were not for such a law before human law, we would not perceive that some laws are just and that some laws ought to be obeyed, nor could we judge that some laws are unjust and, at least in some circumstances, ought not to be obeyed. Without some such conception of a law prior to any human law, we also could not respect that the allocation of authority to make laws can be just or unjust, nor could we judge between who has the authority to make an authentic law and who does not. 
we measure not only individual man-made laws, but also the very human authority by which such law is made against some sense of obligation, right, or just rule that precedes any rule made by human beings. I also hope it is clear from my examples and from this description that the notion of natural law is not partisan or ideological. For entirely contingent historical reasons, talk of natural law in American political discourse today is most often associated with conservative thought. But in fact, for several decades now, conservative scholars of constitutional jurisprudence have been even more than their progressive counterparts likely to refer to original meaning or intent, measuring legal reasoning only against the human text, not against some higher natural law, a form of what is called legal positivism. By contrast, it is often more progressive or activist judges who have found it easier to appeal to standards of justice outside the written text of the Constitution. They may not do so by invoking natural law by name, but only the idea of a higher law or a standard of right prior to any written law can give sense to such progressive or revisionary demands for justice. So it should be evident already that some source of obligation prior to human will or some independent standard of justice can be acknowledged without presuming or agreeing on any detailed content of such obligation or standard and can be expressed without using the phrase natural law and can even be expressed in terms that do not explicitly describe the standard or obligation as law at all. We can explain how you judge the fairness of your professors or how Martin Luther King discerned the injustice of Jim Crow laws, or how Antigone resisted the tyranny of Creon, using other terminology. We could talk about conscience, or rights, or duties, or fairness, or justice, or really anything that invokes a standard not made by human beings. In one of the most important modern books about natural law, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis reaches outside the Western tradition and invokes the Hindu notion of rata, a great pattern, and the Chinese notion of the Tao, the way. And to emphasize how uncontroversial even the basic content of the natural law is, Lewis collects in the appendix to that book a long list of examples from across time and nationality of common commands of the way, doing good for others, not committing slander, fraud, or trickery, being loyal to friends and family, honoring elders, caring for children, sacrificing for one's community, repaying debts, keeping promises. For most of human history, these things have been acknowledged without having to be theorized as elements of a so-called natural law. Aristotle was describing some of the most commonly recognized contents of natural law when, after defining virtue in terms of a mean, he names three kinds of actions that are always prohibited, theft, adultery, and murder. He does so without argument and without any account of the source of the prohibition. Presumably, in a reasonably healthy culture, we wouldn't argue about such things. C.S. Lewis was right. It is difficult, in fact, to find any culture or tradition anywhere which entirely steps outside this conception of a standard of justice or obligation prior to human fiat. Even the most innovative attempts to describe a basis for social life and morality other than natural law still end up capturing a sense of obligation prior to human law. I will give two illustrations. Thomas Hobbes famously argues that in the state of nature there is no justice 
and that what we call justice emerges only with the formation of the social contract through human convention. And yet, why ought the social contract to be obeyed? And why are members of society still allowed to disobey laws for the sake of self-protection? Hobbes would not answer in terms of natural law, and yet the fact that he does provide an answer in terms of the notion of a compact and of a natural right to self-protection suggests that despite himself, he retains a sense of binding obligation or justice prior to man-made law. Likewise, another quintessential modern thinker, John Stuart Mill, tried to offer a utilitarian defense of political liberty without any appeal to abstract right. And yet, even he acknowledged that political liberty only suited a certain kind of civilized society, while a more barbarian one might need to be governed by benevolent despotism. Who gets to judge and why? It seems that Mill must acknowledge, at least implicitly, an independent standard for how human beings should behave, apart from any man-made convention about how, in fact, they do behave. Now, if even Hobbes and Mill, despite themselves, can't escape some conception of the natural law by some other name, we shouldn't be surprised to find John Locke willing to accept the notion of natural law and perhaps only differing from Aquinas in how and to what extent he grounds it in a theory of human nature and nature in general. So far, I have argued that the basic idea of natural law as a binding obligation or moral standard is inescapable, in part by acknowledging that it has not always been conceived of as natural law. And it was not always conceived of even as law. Historically, it was something of an odd achievement to think of natural obligation in terms of law in the first place. The conceptual extension of the law from the realm of man-made codes of conduct to a universal principle of action, transcending distinctions of particular human communities, involved an originally very awkward development of linguistic usage. The Greek word for law, nomos, just meant human convention. It was thus effectively the opposite of phusis, or nature. The Greek mind thus habitually divided the world into the realm of phusis, nature, and nomos, law, the natural versus the conventional. And to speak of natural law would have first sounded to an ancient Greek ear like something of a paradox. This explains why we find no mention of natural law in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. There, Aristotle is very willing to distinguish conventional or legal justice from natural justice, and he explicitly associates justice with law. And yet, despite the clear logical implication that there is such a thing as natural law, he does not venture to formulate such a phrase. Aristotle does speak of a law according to nature in his rhetoric. That's where he comments on Antigone. But we usually credit the Stoics with venturing to extend Greek nomos to include the realm of phusis. Long since this Stoic development, words have continued to develop in meaning, and this in some way accounts for modern confusions and controversies about what is meant by natural law. But even Aquinas, who is arguably the greatest synthesizer of the natural law tradition, himself does not seem to have taken for granted that it was simple or even necessary to speak of moral obligation as natural law. His questions on law, including extensive treatment of natural law in the Summa Theologiae, are so careful and thorough they are often referred to as an independent treatise. 
But Aquinas barely mentions the natural law in his early theological, earlier theological treatises, the Summa, the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Commentary on the Sentences. Nor does he bring up natural law in his philosophical commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So while I have been arguing that it is inescapable to grasp that there is a higher law, I have also acknowledged that it is not inescapable to call this a law, much less to call it a natural law. To conceive of moral obligation as natural law was a particular and contingent development in intellectual history. Aquinas is deservedly credited with recognizing and capitalizing on this development and exploring its implications. And so we need to consider next how for Aquinas, the idea of moral obligation as natural law reveals something about the nature of moral obligation, deliberation, and decision-making, and about human nature. So the next main section of the talk is called Natural Law Qua Natural Law. How is it law and how is it natural? Often objections to the very idea of natural law are rooted in misconceptions about the relevant notions of law and nature. To appreciate what is gained by conceiving of moral obligation as natural law, we need to clarify how Aquinas understood nature and how he understood law. According to a common modern conception, nature is something simply given, lacking purpose or design, a collection of stuff that may happen to settle into regular patterns or normal, which is to say statistically average behavior, but in itself lacking order and intention. Many people have in fact been taught that modern science advanced precisely because old ideas of design and purpose, of formal and final cause, were boldly laid aside so that nature could be conceived of only in terms of motion and matter. Of course, we know the oak tree is alive and produces acorns in order to reproduce, and that to grow and flourish, the tree ought to have a certain kind of climate and soil. But we are sometimes taught to think of the oak tree atomistically as a collection of inert particles that just happen to be moving around in a very complicated way. In this way, even though the notion of purpose and design persist in the actual practice of science, especially biology, and the actual discourse of science textbooks, the theorization of science, and thus the theorization of nature, often remains in metaphysical confusion, reductionist, materialistic, and so trying to separate nature from any observation of its tendencies and inclinations and from judgments about what ought to happen or what is good or fulfilling. On this, what I'm calling the modern view of nature, we can think of nature as governed by laws, say the law of gravity or the law of thermodynamics, but these laws are not in any way obligations expressed by some kind of binding command. Rather, they are recognizable patterns or universal principles, common truths of predictable behavior. For the modern mind, the notion of law seems to have bifurcated. On the one hand, there is law as it might apply outside of human affairs, a general description of regular events, at best taken as a kind of metaphor of law in the sense of some governing or binding force, but more like an equation or summary or description of statistical regularity, law as assertion about how nature happens to behave, not about what should happen. On the other hand, when we make judgments about what humans ought to do, or what would be conducive to our fulfillment, we assume that we are engaged in a very different kind of reasoning, 
not only set apart from, but in some way at odds with nature. Human beings might try to manipulate or control nature, but we do so as somehow impinging our will on nature from the outside. So law, as applied within human affairs, retains a notion of guiding or limiting or genuinely governing action that would otherwise be free. The source of law on this modern view is the will of the lawgiver. Law in this sense is an expression of power and a mode of control. It might be freely issued from the lawgiver and those subject to it may have to freely submit to it, but those exercises of freedom are measured only in terms of self-interest, of the distribution and management of power. Thus, in a common modern way of thinking, law as applied to nature is something purely descriptive and not in any way a cause of action, while law as applied to human beings is a genuine cause of action, but something inherently restrictive, coercive, and manipulative. Aquinas's conception of natural law offers an opportunity to consider alternatives, I would say correctives, to these modern notions of nature and law. For Aquinas, what is natural is what bears within itself its own principles of action. Something is natural to the extent that it has an intrinsic order or tendency, as plants respond to sunlight, fire burns, and the planets move. The motions, activities, and potencies of things can be more or less complex and manifest in different modes, but they are all evidence of things having characteristic tendencies or final causes given to them by their specific form or nature. Many early modern philosophers mocked the idea of final and formal causality in nature, but in doing so, they only revealed their own failure to understand basic vocabulary about the obvious intelligibility and activity of natural things. Gravity and growth and generation are powers which act in and through particular kinds of natural bodies. It is true that as certain positivist philosophers suggested, and as Hume's famous arguments against causality already implied, we can be agnostic about actual forces and powers that explain why bodies behave in a certain way, and instead fixate on a law of gravity as a general rule that massive bodies behave in a certain way. But there is something oddly unscientific about this. To deny that nature has its own intrinsic designs and purposes, its forces and powers and causes, is to deny that nature has its own intelligibility. It reduces scientists to describing an intelligibility that is really their own mind's interpretation of observation. Scientists on this view do not discover the actual intelligibility of natural activity. This has obvious implications for the notion of law. To believe in a descriptive law of gravity without also believing that the law is a true account of an actual power of gravity is to conceive of law less like a binding force in nature and more as a summary of how we observe otherwise inexplicable regularity in nature. On the other hand, if there is an actual power of gravity, it itself is and expresses a law, a cause of action, a regulating force that binds objects to behave in a certain way. To think of nature as intelligible thus helps us to clarify the sense in which the forms in things determining their ends could be conceived as expressions of law. One can think of law as merely an arbitrary constraint, a code of conduct constricting and directing behavior, and indeed in human experience perhaps this is how we sometimes experience human law. Ask my kids. 
But for Aquinas, it is in the nature of law that it, it expresses a coherent rule. For many thinkers, including John Locke, it is easiest to think of law as an expression of will and desire. Hence, Locke has been criticized as a voluntarist. For Aquinas, law is essentially an expression of mind and rationality. This is, for Aquinas, the proper genus of law, the essential category of its definition. Law is a dictate of reason, a command of practical intelligence. And this is not only true of human law, but even of the law by which God governs creation, making things to be what they are. The divine fiat, do this, expresses the divine logos, intelligence or reason. It is only by understanding the genus of law as a dictate of reason, not an expression of will, that the other parts of Aquinas' definition of law make sense as specifying this dictate as law. First, that it must be expressed by intelligence from a relevant authority. Second, who is exercising that intelligence for the care of community. And third, that it must be shared with, published, or promulgated to the members of that community. If the dictate of reason were not promulgated, if it were for a private rather than common interest, if it were not from a legitimate authority, it would lack something essential to law. It would be defective law, or it would not, in fact, be law at all. We can now see that for Aquinas, nature obeys law, indeed receives law promulgated to it. For law is an expression of intelligence, and nature, all of physical creation, has received a form or design according to which it behaves with specific appropriate action or purpose. Simply as manifesting formal and final causality then, nature can be said to be obedient to law, to an intelligible order. Aquinas understood this intelligible order as properly law. It is a dictative reason of the creator, the divine maker of nature. God is the legitimate authority, and he has care of the community, responsibility for his creation. God promulgates or shares this law with his creation in the mode appropriate for his creation by encoding it in the very nature of the things he created. The rock does not need to be conscious of the law of gravity to know it. The rock, simply by being a rock and having the mass that it has, knows and is empowered to obey the law of gravity which God has promulgated to all massive bodies. So nature does not make laws, but nature obeys laws made by God. And in a way, we could say that nature encodes and is even an expression of laws made by God. This law, which Aquinas calls the eternal law, is just another name for God's providence over all creation. The eternal law is the divine reason insofar as it has oversight over creation, and physical things receive and manifest that oversight by having the distinctive physical natures that they have. It is thanks to this conception of nature and law as both manifestations of intelligible order that Aquinas can situate ethics as a special part of a general project of reasoning about all of creation as a community under God's governance. Human beings are a part of nature, and we are governed by the same eternal law that governs nature. We are a special and distinctive part, but what makes us special and distinctive does not separate us from nature. Rather, it gives us a special role in relation to the rest of nature and a special relationship to the eternal law that governs all of nature. 
What makes us special and distinctive, according to Aquinas, is that we have a share in the rational conscious determination of our behavior. It is, in one way, it is one way in which we bear an image of the divine in us, that we not only are subject to God's providence, but participate in it by exercising providence over our own actions. That's moral agency. So as law for Aquinas is essentially an expression of intelligence rather than will, the human being is essentially a creature that intelligently participates in being governed. What motivates us to act in community with others is not fear, as Hobbes would have it, or the satisfaction of needs, as for Locke. And so what makes us capable of acting in accord with the natural law is not mere cleverness in negotiating relations of power. Rather, what motivates us to act is a desire to fulfill our nature, and what enables us to do that well is intelligence as the ability to grasp the truth of our nature and the truth of action in accord with our nature. The political animal is the rational animal. Thus, when Aquinas defines natural law as governing distinctively human nature, he calls it the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. As human beings, we are governed by the same eternal law that governs all creation, but we participate in that law in a distinctive way as being capable of understanding it and enacting it intelligently in our own lives over which we have a rational providence that is an image of the divine providence over the whole of creation. So the third part of the talk is called Natural Law's Theological Implications. By now we can set aside some potential confusions about what Aquinas calls natural law. In particular, we can see that it is not called natural because it is made by nature, nor is it a natural law because it is explainable in purely physical terms, nor is it called a natural law because it conceives of law as something apart from the supernatural or divine. Natural law, according to Aquinas, is an expression of divine intelligence as manifested in a particular part of nature, the life of the rational animal, human beings. So natural law as law is from a divine lawgiver, and it is natural in two senses. It is promulgated to and encoded in our nature as being the very kind of beings we are, rational animals, and it is knowable by us through our natural power of reason. Does this mean that a theory of natural law is necessarily theistic? Yes and no. One does not need to believe in God in order to grasp much of the contents of natural law, nor to experience natural law as somehow binding. But yes, to grasp binding or obligatory natural law principles as principles of natural law, that is to conceive of it as law, does imply an authority. How and in what way one conceives of the lawgiver as divine may vary. Aquinas obviously has in mind the Trinitarian God of Christian faith, while Stoics identified the divine with the intrinsic pattern of the universe itself. But to conceive of natural law as law is at least to this extent a theological commitment. It will be useful to say more about how natural law, as an expression of divine intelligence, is distinguished from the more typically voluntaristic kind of divine command theory as an expression of divine will. As typically described, divine command theory, a divine command theory is one which seems to make God's regulation of human behavior extrinsic and therefore seemingly arbitrary, as if God made human creatures and then, in a separate act, contrived a set of rules for our behavior. 
In this case, if God's law is binding, it is binding only because it is God's will and not because God's will reflects some truth about our nature and its proper fulfillment. By contrast, Thomistic natural law, as a part of the eternal law, makes the commands of God intrinsic to the creature. The commands are issued in and through the making of the creature to be the kind of creature it is. This is why I've said that according to natural law theory, God's commands for our behavior are encoded in the very constitution of our nature. Just like the rule that water freezes at zero degrees centigrade is encoded in the chemical structure of water, and the rule that tomato plants need sunlight is encoded in as intrinsic to the very vegetative life of the tomato plant, natural law prohibitions against adultery, theft, and murder are not some arbitrary set of rules imposed after the fact on human nature, but they are bound up with our very nature as embodied social rational animals. For this reason, when John Paul II, in Veritatis Splendor, sought to articulate the Thomistic notion of natural law, he distinguished it not only from a notion of self-imposed law, which he called autonomy, but also from an extrinsically imposed law, which he called heteronomy, other or outside law. John Paul II called natural law instead participated theonomy, sharing in a law from God, a clear echo and affirmation of Aquinas' definition of natural law as man's participation in the eternal law. So while conceiving of natural law as natural law in the way Aquinas did is an inherently theological position, it does not commit one to a particular religion, nor does one need to already believe God exists to experience natural law as binding as something that demands our obedience. In fact, far from needing to have knowledge of God before one can experience moral obligation, it can be, and often is the case, that the practical experience of moral obligation, more effectively than any abstract theoretical proofs, is what leads people to knowledge of God and his providence over us. So the fourth main part of the paper is called The Contents or Scope of Natural Law or what natural law doesn't determine. With this basic understanding of natural law, we can now appreciate how and why Aquinas talks about natural law in terms of different levels of specification, and why this is important for understanding politics and the function of positive law, including constitutions. In the most general, the broadest but the least informative sense, the natural law can be abstracted to a single first principle, pursue the good. This can be expressed in different formulations, do good and avoid evil, act in accord with reason, seek your final end, but these are simply different ways of conceiving of a first universal principle of all human action. At this level, nobody can be ignorant of the natural law. We might argue over whether something is good, but not over whether the good is to be done. The next somewhat more, somewhat more informative level of natural law consists in principles still deemed primary, each reflecting one or another dimension of human nature. As substances, we are obligated to conserve ourselves in being. As animals, to safeguard the future of the species and care for our offspring. As rational and social animals, to seek fellowship with others and with God. It is from 
this level that one can see the reasonableness of certain basic and usually uncontroversial moral obligations, the prohibitions of murder, adultery, and theft, requirements to pay debts, to protect and educate children, and to worship God. It is difficult, but possible, to be ignorant of these commands of natural law. In a healthy culture, mature adults will grasp these truths, but very irrational or immature people, or people who are corrupt or who have had no opportunity to form their consciences, can lack knowledge of these precepts. As we move farther away from these primary principles to secondary or more remote ones, they depend on higher degrees of awareness, understanding, and experience. It is here where we might place prohibitions against suicide, divorce, polygamy, and contraception, or the various parts of just war theory. These are all still parts of natural law and no less true, but they are more derivative and more difficult to discern. And as a consequence, many people, including very intelligent and well-educated people, can fail to grasp them. It is common to conceive of natural law in terms of prohibitions. And indeed, this is the aspect of natural law theory that was most emphasized by John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor. But as we have seen, the natural law also commands or requires. And between prohibiting and commanding, we can say that it is in accord with natural law that there are ranges of action that are permitted but not required, what Brian Tierney calls permissive natural law. One way to appreciate this is to see what Aquinas means when he says that positive, that is man-made law, should be a specification of natural law. The natural law requires that a government protect its citizens, but it does not detail precisely how. So it is up to individual governments to determine, say, traffic laws, military defense, environmental regulations, etc. Speed limits or battle tactics or penalties for pollution are not logically deduced from the natural law as automatic implications. They are specified by relevant authorities discerning particular circumstances in light of the guidance offered by natural law. In fact, given the need for communities to have laws to specify how general principles of natural law will be concretely embodied, one of the most important specifications made is how such human lawmaking authority will be constituted and allocated, how the functions of deliberating about and deciding on and reviewing and applying and enforcing man-made law will be concretely carried out. This is the function of a constitution, and it is why debates about natural law in an American context so often focus on discussions of the constitution, its origins, and its application today especially and philosophies of jurisprudence. But if communities need to specify or determine how to apply general natural law principles in concrete situations, the same can be said for determinations an individual person makes for his or her own actions. The natural law tells you to honor your parents, but you have to use your practical reasoning and deliberate about how best to do that. The natural law requires that when and if you have kids, you nourish and teach them but it does not tell you what food to buy or what curriculum and school to use. Nonetheless, you will experience these choices as weighty moral choices in your life, because they are. You will marshal all of your resources of practical judgment. You will draw on your conscience. You will seek counsel from others who are wiser and more experienced. All of this to make sure you do what is right for you and your family. It is part of the natural law that you are obligated to exercise your prudential judgment to the best of your ability, 
even, especially, when no natural law theory and no articulation of natural law principles can tell you exactly what you must do. Given the indeterminacy, then, of natural law in so much of what matters, we might well ask why or whether we need to speak of natural law at all. We have seen that what is important is that we be able to talk about moral obligation and to be able to articulate some principles of moral obligation. But natural law in general is simply our participation in the eternal law. In other words, it is our share in God's providence. The precepts of natural law can be and are called by Aquinas principles of practical reason, that is, the precepts grasped by the virtue of prudence. And the notion of conscience also captures the idea that we have a way of being aware of right and wrong, of God's will for us. And of course, we also have the language of the virtues, especially the cardinal virtues, and especially justice, which is simply the habit of fulfilling one's obligations, of doing one's proper work. So given that we have so much other language to describe what Aquinas means by natural law, what do we gain by talking about it as natural law? I've already mentioned that Aquinas did not find it necessary to discuss natural law in his philosophical commentary on Aristotle's ethics, nor in his other theological treatises. The placement of the discussion of law in the Summa Theologiae tells us that St. Thomas wanted to accommodate the tradition of natural law discourses, but sought to orient them with respect to other discourse, philosophical and theological, as part of a larger moral teaching. Obviously, the notion of natural law helps Aquinas connect ethical teaching to a specifically Christian understanding of the old law and the new law. The Ten Commandments he treats as a summary of some basic precepts of natural law, which the Jews could have and should have known, and on some level did know, but they forgot or neglected them due to social corruption and personal sin. So, in terms of mode of promulgation, part of directly revealed law, what Aquinas calls divine law, is offered as an aid to those for whom the natural promulgation was available but not sufficiently effective. The new law, the covenant of redemption in Christ, is a further extension of the divine law, specifically revealed by God, but unlike the Ten Commandments, going beyond what could have been known by reason alone. The notion of natural law also helps Aquinas to connect his Christian teaching to what he learns from Aristotle. As I mentioned, Aristotle does not say much about natural law, but he does say much about virtues, which orient agents to their proper end, and especially about the virtue of practical wisdom, prudence, by which agents are also aware of and deliberate well about achieving their natural end. Aquinas locates his discussion of natural law then within a general discussion of law, including eternal law as God's providence over the universe and divine law as God's special assistance in our salvation. The whole treatment of law is located between a long treatment of virtue, vice, and sin as the intrinsic principles and obstacles of human perfection and an account of grace as God's extrinsic help empowering us to overcome sin and vice to fulfill our proper nature as rational beings. The so-called treatise on law then, although not obviously necessary for Aquinas to articulate his theological pedagogy, is almost a microcosm of the whole Summa Theologiae as recapitulating the story of human life 
as emanating from divine reason, participating in divine reason for the fulfillment of divine reason. And so my conclusion. How does a Thomistic account of natural law give us perspective on the American founding? Views will tend to align along two poles. On the one hand, if one interprets the founding as an exercise of liberal political theory, then the Thomistic tradition could provide a basis of critique of liberal theorists, with Locke as a paradigm enlightenment thinker who has an impoverished view of human nature, of nature in general, and of God. On the other hand, it is at least possible to interpret the founding alternatively as a more organic political act, which may have been proximately articulated in sometimes Lockean terms, but still drew on a longer tradition of thought. In this case, the founding could very well embody an implicitly Thomistic conception of human nature and the nature of law. The influence of Enlightenment ideas may complicate things, but does not prevent one from interpreting the founding as a concrete act of framing the constitution of a new nation by men who may or may not have had the theoretical resources to understand how and to what extent their act conformed to and exemplified a traditional conception of natural law which long preceded Enlightenment theories. This was the interpretation that Russell Kirk offered in his lecture. He argued that the founders and early American jurists received the Thomistic tradition via Cicero, Blackstone, and Hooker, and so embodied an essentially Catholic understanding of natural law. Drawing on the thought of another impressive convert man of letters, Orestes Brownson, Kirk argued that while the US Constitution was not intentionally written to embody a specifically Catholic conception of natural law, it is not only compatible with such a conception, but is best interpreted in light of such a conception. Are Kirk and Brownson right to interpret the American Republic in this way, not as a liberal enlightenment contrivance, but as an inchoately Catholic development? I will not weigh in on that question, except to say that how we answer it is yet another choice that we make, not only as reflective and responsible citizens and philosophically minded students, but as free and rational creatures participating in the wise order of a divine providence. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.